All right. <laughs> so, so I have a question for you. What is on your wish list? I'm sure that someone, if not already, will come to you. Maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your brother, sister, your spouse, your kids, and say, hey, what do you, what do you want for Christmas? Why don't I get you something? Give me some ideas. And normally when you are asked, well, what do you do? You go through a filter, a financial filter. You don't ask your kid for a Lamborghini, you know what I mean? Yeah, and you start saying, well, what's realistic? What's within their price range? And you try to find something, if, if you can be helpful, that's appropriate. Well, let's take off all filters financially, and let's just go for the moon. If there were no, if you had, the, if you had that gun, that scanner, and you could go anywhere and shoot it at anything saying, that's what I want, no limits financially, what would you really love? Think about it. Don't tell anyone, just between you. And you say, hey, pastor, this is not a very godly exercise. You know, we're trying to combat materialism, and you're, you know, inviting us to think wildly about what we desire. I don't think that's very wise or godly of you. In fact, we're trying to teach our kids that Christmas is not about getting, it's about giving, right? Wrong. It's about getting. (laughs) I'm not kidding you. I'm serious. When you look theologically at the meaning of Christmas, it is about getting a gift. It's about getting the most incredible gift ever. It's about God giving a gift that we're still trying to get our minds around. This baby Jesus, born and placed in a manger, is a Christmas gift to you and to me. Do you remember in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, it says, For unto us a son is born. For unto, us, or for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. This, this Christmas child is given to us. And I make the case, and you'll maybe want to disagree with me on this point, but I make the case that this Christmas gift, this baby Jesus, is better, hundred times better, than whatever you had in your mind or what you were imagining. And you all are like, yeah, that's right. That's the right spiritual answer. I'm glad I have baby Jesus more than whatever I was thinking about. But there's a side of us that struggles with that. We're like, you know, baby Jesus, oh, great, a little baby, wonderful. That's what I've always wanted. Thank you, so cute. Lucky me. And we struggle to get our heart and mind around that. And yet when we think about the Lamborghini, or some of you are thinking about the $3 million mansion, or some of you are saying, I wish I had a supermodel as a girlfriend. And it's at those moments, it would be easy to say, no, those would really be better than this baby. And folks, we need to understand the true significance of Christmas and the meaning that's there. Because I'm telling you, when we see Christ for who he really is, we will realize he is, you know, this huge gift behind me. He is the huge present that will forever cause us to dance with gratitude and be in awe of God's generosity. Here's what we're going to do to get our minds around Christmas. We're going to look at, so I already quoted out of Isaiah 9, the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born. That's a long time, 700 years. 
He was filled with the Spirit of God, and the Lord put a passion on his heart and words in his mind, and God inspired him to write a poem. Some of the scholars call it the poem of the royal birth announcement. It's out of Isaiah 9, the, the passage about unto us a child, or a, a child is born unto us, a son is given, comes right out of that poem. So you've heard it before. It's seven verses at the beginning of Isaiah 9. And we're going to study in this three-week series, we're going to study the poem in its entirety. And in this poem, we're going to see that as Isaiah helps us understand the significance of the birth of the Messiah, he's going to really point to three things that Jesus brings. He brings us joy, that's week one. He brings us peace, that's next week. And he brings us hope, that's week three. All right? kind of ironic that Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, has the capacity to help us understand an event that's 2,000 years before us, but he does, and he will. And I'm excited to dive into it with you. So, with the pursuit of this joy that comes through the birth of Christ, let's take a look at Isaiah 9, verse 2. The poem begins in verse 2. It says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. The Lord is using the imagery of light coming into a dark world to to describe the birth of Jesus. I'm not going to get into the light imagery. I want to because I love it, but I'm not going to because our Christmas Eve service, a little plug here, is called Brilliant Light, and it's all about that light imagery, understanding, helping us understand what Christmas is about. So we're skipping verse 2 of the poem, the first verse of the poem, and going to verse 3. I kind of entitled this verse, The Joy of Wealth. You know, before I read it, can I just make a comment? I I had a uh, guy get me in the lobby after the first service, and he said, your New Living Translation differs from the one in our Bibles ahead of the seats. And I went and checked, and he's right. Uh, My Living Translation was an updated version from last year where our ones in the pews come from 1996 and every once in a while they adjust the language. You'll see if you compare, the meaning is still the same, but the vocabulary has changed a bit to be improved. So don't be bothered by that. All right, the joy of wealth. It says they, these are the people who receive this great gift of the Messiah. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. First of all, do you see the joy? Rejoice, rejoice. But this is a rejoicing in the Lord. It's, they will rejoice before you, Lord, as, as what? And he gives two images, one of a farmer and his harvest and one of a warrior and his plunder. And admittedly, this is a little challenging for us to get our minds around because you're probably not a farmer and you're probably not a soldier. Maybe, but probably not. So let's use our creative uh, capacities to try to imagine what it would be like to be those two because this, this passage says that the birth of this baby makes you so wealthy that if you understood it, it would bring you great joy. It's like, let's start with the farmer at harvest. Can you imagine if you were a farmer 
at the end of harvest, your back is sore, you've been working hard, you open the doors of your barn, and there is a pile of grain, unlike any harvest before, reaching to the roof. And, you know, to us consumers, food of a harvest is just what we eat. But to a farmer, it is money. It is payday. It is, oh my, did I have a harvest or what? And there is a joy that comes from this realization that you've just hit the jackpot. You've won the lottery. You are a wealthy, wealthy person. Okay? And then let's look at the warrior dividing plunder. Plunder is not a word we use much, but in ancient battle, here's how it worked. When an army, a nation, was fighting against another nation, they would defeat the small cities first, and then they would ultimately win the battle by conquering the capital city. It would be a bloody fight, but eventually they will have slaughtered the enemy or the remnants of the enemy would flee to the trees. And they would move into the capital and they would raise their flag, having defeated the enemy. And at that moment came one of the most glorious moments that a soldier anticipated. They would go to the place, the building called the treasury, and they would swing open those doors. And it was understood that the conquering nation could claim the possessions of the defeated as their own. And so imagine... What it would have been like for these soldiers to come into the treasury. You see, they got, it says that like warriors dividing the plunder. The, the soldier was remunerated, was paid back for his services by some of the plunder becoming his own. They would divide it up to all the soldiers. So imagine, all right, you're, you're with me. We're high-fiving. We won the battle. Let's see what is ours. And those doors are open. And piles of gold and rubies and diamonds and beautiful pieces of gold, art and jewelry. And we're just letting it run through our fingers. And then the commander calls us to divide it up. And our pockets and our backpacks are chock full of treasures beyond anything we've ever owned before. Can you imagine the joy in that moment as you come home and spill it out on the floor and say, look, this is ours? And you say, I'm not getting it. How? In what way does Jesus make me rich? I'm not experiencing that part of Christmas yet. It seems to cost me a lot, actually. And the wealth that I am describing, the wealth that is ours, this is an analogy, all right? This is not saying that we will be rich with monetary, earthly treasure, but it's pointing to the spiritual treasure that is ours. And the New Testament speaks repeatedly of the riches that are ours in Christ. Again and again, the Bible, as the Lord led the authors, chooses to use the imagery of wealth to describe what is ours in Christ. Because Jesus came at Christmas, because he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our rebellion, and because of his work, we are brought into God's family. We get so much. And it's called wealth. This was uh, really brought home to me a couple years ago when I went to Africa. I went to Kenya to minister to pastors there. And there was this one pastor I will never forget. He blew me away. His name was Benson, a little older than me, short. Uh, he had a birth defect where his feet weren't there. He just kind of had stumps where he should have had feet. And as a result, it was difficult for him to walk. And his birth defect in that culture was 
cause of rejection. His parents gave him up because of his defects, sent him to the streets, and he was an orphan and then eventually raised by another. And this guy, I saw his house. He lived in a mud hut in the Maasai territory of southwest Kenya where I was. That's normal. People live in mud huts with grass thatch roofs. I mean, it's just mud floor, mud walls, grass roof. And Benson was so filled with joy. In fact, I would say he was the most joyful human being I have ever met. And I've met a lot of you, and I'm telling you, he's got more joy than you do. And he would tell me with beaming face, he goes, Brother Griffin, I am so wealthy. And it was an awkward moment. I'm like, well, that's great, Benson. In my mind, I'm thinking, no, you're not. No, you are the most poor human being I have ever seen in my entire life. But he wasn't talking about money. And he would begin to expand, can you believe what we have in Jesus, he would tell me. And I'd say, yeah, I know, tell me again. And he would say, he goes, Jeff, we have been forgiven of all of our sin. And we have been given a new identity as sons and daughters of God Almighty, princes and princesses of the King of all kings. We have been filled with the Spirit of God who enables us with abilities or spiritual gifts to serve Him on wonderful missions of great importance that He calls us on. God is our best friend, our constant companion, our guide and support through every day of life. And as He went on and on, I began to say, yeah, I guess we are rich. I guess we're crazy rich. And folks, if you get your mind around the life that is ours because of what Christ has done and this reconciled relationship with us and God, yet you begin to agree with Benson and the Bible that we have riches in Christ that we are only beginning to understand. And so when we look at the baby lying in the manger, it's payday. It's lottery-winning type of celebration. Because in this baby, we are invited into a life of blessing beyond our capacity to understand presently. But let's try to understand it, because the more we do understand all that we have in him, the more joy will come our way. So there's one. That's the joy of wealth. The the next verse, verse 4, talks about the joy of freedom. Let Let me read this. It says, You will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders, you'll break the oppressor's rod. The imagery here, you've never been a slave, and so this is a bit challenging to understand, but the imagery is of a slave who has an oppressor, an owner who has been evil and has beat him with a rod and has put a heavy burden of labor on him for his own benefit. Slavery was a very real part of the ancient world and one that was just horrendous. And the, the coming of this child born at Christmas, he would free them, break the yoke and break the rod and bring them a freedom they have never known before. And the Bible says that if you understand Christmas, that's your story. And, and, and you may say, how is that my story? I mean, in what sense am I... Or was I a prisoner? It's a good question. And if we understand our story according to the Bible, we realize that all of us started 
as prisoners in a very dark situation, enslaved to an evil, evil owner. Uh, The Bible talks about this in the New Testament. I'm going to read a verse. This is out of Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. It says this, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son. The dominion of darkness. That's our story. Every one of us, if you're a Christian, you have been rescued by this Jesus. Part of what he came to do was to rescue you out of the dominion of darkness, out of one kingdom into another. And you say, what are these kingdoms? Let me explain. So the Bible is very clear that there are two sides in our universe. There's a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. God's the king of the kingdom of love and light. But there's a rebellion that's been going on before we were around. And that rebellion was initiated by the angelic realm. I know the angelic are hard for some to understand, but God says in his word that he didn't just create human beings. There's another species, if you will, of free will beings called angels that God created. And part of them have remained loyal and faithful to Almighty God. Part of them have rebelled. Part of them have said, we're going to do our own thing. We're going to start our own kingdom. We don't want to listen to you or follow you or obey you anymore, God. And that kingdom of darkness is led by one of their angels who had been prominent in service of the Lord, uh, now referred to as Satan or the devil. Just an angel who has rebelled and is now leading the rebellion. And you say, well, I was never part of that rebellion. Well, I hate to break the bad news to you, but you were. In fact, the Bible says that all of us have violated God's moral code. We have all done things that reject and ignore the will of God. And that rebellion, that moral depravity has led to us being in the middle of this kingdom of darkness, being enslaved by Satan and his minions, just forcing us to continue in this path of darkness. And not only were we a part of that kingdom of darkness, we were destined, apart from Christ, to be a part of that horrific kingdom, both in this life and for all eternity, suffering the punishment that is established for that kingdom known as hell. But the incredible news of what Jesus came to do is that he came to free us, to break the yoke and to break the rod and to say, you are no longer a part of that kingdom and no longer mastered by that evil leader. You are now ushered into a new kingdom for all eternity to enjoy the kingdom of Almighty God. To enter into that is kind of tough. One thing that's helped me, ironically, is the movie The Shawshank Redemption. Maybe you've seen that movie before. In that movie, uh, uh, Tim Robbins is the actor and he plays this guy named Andy Dufresne who was accused of murder, and he was innocent. He didn't murder anybody, but he was accused of murder. He was thrown into jail, and not just any jail. This was a nasty jail where the warden was an egomaniac who was evil, and he looked at this jail as his little world, his domain, and he ruled it with cruelty and abused those who were in his care, including Andy. Andy got the worst of it. Andy was abused in that horrific place for two decades. But for those 20 years, unbeknownst to most, 
behind this poster, he was chipping away at the rock wall in his prison. Every day for over 20 years, little by little, making slow progress until finally he had chiseled himself a tunnel that led to a sewer pipe and he got into the sewer pipe and crawled, remember, crawled his way through the sewage and eventually on that beautiful night he emerged free. Here's a picture I want to show you from the movie. This is Andy as he's just come out of the sewer pipe and it's night and it's raining and he is just... The joy, when you've been in that dark kingdom and been abused and you never knew whether freedom would ever come your way, the joy of freedom is beyond description. <clears throat> that's you, if you have eyes to see it. That's your story and that's my story. We were in that dark kingdom with that evil leader. That was our lot for all eternity, so it seemed. But Jesus came, and he has rescued us. And if you're a Christian, you've been ushered into the kingdom of his light to enjoy freedom in Christ forever. That's reason for joy. Let me go to the last verse that we're going to look at today. And that one I've entitled, The Joy of Victory. Isaiah 9 verse 5 says, The boots of the warrior... And the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. That's weird. They will be fuel for the fire, burning boots and burning clothing. What's going on here? Well, let me tell you. In the ancient battle, ancient warfare, there would be many small battles where you wouldn't burn your clothes or your boots. You'd, you'd win that battle and you'd say, I'm glad we won that, but this was just one small battle. There are many more. Better keep my boots in my fatigues, because I got many more to come. But there was an ultimate battle. When, when that battle was won, the war was over, and the soldiers could return home. They could be with family and live a life of a civilian and a farmer, whatever they were. And when that supreme last battle, the final battle that won the war was done, apparently they would often have a big fire where they would burn their war equipment, celebrating that victory is ours and the struggle is done. Can you imagine how good it would feel for those guys as they pulled off these boots and just chucked them in the fire and said, that part of my life is over, no more striving. And that's our story. And you say, how is that our story? Again, the New Testament is so clear that there is a battle that Christ has won, a battle that he has won for us. And the ultimate moment that won the battle is the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, when he hung on the cross, one of the things he said right before he died was, it is finished. This was the final and ultimate victory over Satan that paid for the sins of all humanity. And in paying for all of the sins, the doors are open for all of us to enter into that victory, to be forgiven, and for that victory to be ours. You know, there are a lot of so-called Christians who don't realize this. I've met a lot of folks who I love, and it breaks my heart because they think they've still got to win that battle. They think they've got to earn God's favor. 
They're fighting to do good and to impress God and to stop doing bad things and to go to church more and say more prayers and help more people, trying to earn right standing with God. But the Bible says we don't have to do that, that Christ has won that battle, that it's ours as a gift. And so it doesn't matter if you're eight years old or 80 years old, if you're a Christian, you've got the ultimate victory. And you say, well, what do you do with the rest of life? You live not as a desperate attempt to win that battle, but you live your life out of gratitude for the victory that's already yours. When someone gets baptized, they're not doing one more thing, striving to get God's favor. When someone's baptized, they come out of the water. Why? Because they've got the victory. That baptism is a celebration of what they've received freely as a gift from God. They're saved. The battle's over. They are God's. They're headed to heaven. That's what we've got. The victory's not something that we hope someday we get. If you're a Christian, the victory is something you've already got. Burn your boots <laughs> and celebrate that the great victory is yours. And so Isaiah, in a sense, is pleading with us all, all of you who are the recipients of this Christmas child, look at what you've got. This is unbelievable. You are rich beyond your wildest dreams, so rejoice. You were in prison, but now you are free, so rejoice. You were struggling and battling, but you've got the victory now, so rejoice. Do you see the joy that could, should be ours if we realize, if we have eyes to see what we've got in Jesus? I wanted to end with a, a story that I just was so fascinated by. It's about a guy who lives in Milwaukee, not far from here. Uh, I used to live very close to Milwaukee. I'm the, not over the cheddar curtain. I was always an Illinois boy. I, I hate the Packers. It's okay. But, oh, come on. This guy's name is John Kuhn. We have a picture of John Kuhn. He's a real estate agent, sells real estate. And a while back, he was in one of his customers' houses when he noticed a painting on their wall that fascinated him. Here's actually a picture of the painting on that house. So could we go to the next one? This is the flowers that hung on their wall. This is a very middle-class uh, suburbs of Milwaukee home. And he just couldn't stop staring at this painting hanging over a couch in their living room. And his job was real estate. His passion was art. And John Kuhn says, this is an original. And they're like, yeah. He said, could this be a Van Gogh, Vincent Van Gogh? And they're like, who's Vincent Van Gogh? These people had no clue, all right? And they explained. They, they said, well, we, we got this painting 30 years ago. We were newlyweds, and my aunt gave it to us as a gift. Her husband was real into collecting art and he had died and she didn't know what to do with the stuff. Some of it she kept, some of it she just gave away to relatives. We've never liked the painting, honestly, but, you know, they received it and they were like, wow, wonderful. Thanks, aunts. Uh, 
You got anything else? You know? And they didn't know whether to give it as a white elephant gift. They didn't know whether to throw it away. They decided to hang it on their walls, and it had hung for 30 years. This John Kuhn said, guys, I swear to you, this might be an original Vincent van Gogh. And they're like, no, it's not. And he's like, you've got to check. Trust me. And they said, well, how would we check? And he says, I, I know people in the art business who could help. And so they let him take it. And he took it and he brought it to some folks who said, oh, my goodness, you may be right. And they eventually sent it over to Amsterdam where the world authenticating Van Gogh experts are. And it turned out to be an unknown original Van Gogh in Milwaukee. And it was sold for one and a half million dollars. Can you believe that? And I look at the irony of this. Here, this couple was like, yeah, look at our gift. Woo-hoo, I just hang it up. And for 30 years, they lived with a treasure, and they were oblivious to its value. Until John Kuhn came along and shook them up and said, you don't realize what you've got. And I feel a little bit like John Kuhn myself right now, looking at all of you, saying, I'm fearful that you don't realize what you've got. I don't realize what I've got. Every day now in the Christmas season, you may walk past a a manger, a nativity scene. And there's little baby Jesus reminding us that what we've got is this gift called Jesus Christ. And sometimes we say, yeah, Jesus is the gift of Christmas. Woohoo, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oblivious to the unbelievable blessings that are found in Christ. We are rich, and we are free, and we are victorious for all eternity because of the one who came at Christmas. And I pray that increasingly as we see and live connected to that eternal reality, our hearts will be filled with joy. And you say, how can my heart be filled with joy? My life stinks. It may be that you have some really, really bad stuff in your life. And I'm not arguing that your stuff is really bad. But if you're a Christian, the good outweighs the bad. If you're a Christian, the, the, what you have in Jesus is so outrageous that it makes all that is ugly and bad in our lives seem relatively small compared to the good, the blessing that is ours. And those who can connect day in and day out, and live in that great blessing that is ours in Christ, joy will be the gift that comes through the Christmas child. I'll tell you the crazy irony. This this Van Gogh, if you will, called Jesus, this painting, this gift, do you know that it's been offered to every single human being on planet Earth Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. And the Bible says that it's God's will that all would be saved. And yet the majority have taken a pass and said, "Uh, not my style, Uh, you can keep it. Isn't that crazy? I mean, think of somebody being offered free a one and a half million dollar Van Gogh and saying, "Uh, I'm not really into flowers, you can keep it. I mean, that's unthinkable. But the reason people take a pass on this free gift being offered to them is they don't recognize its value. They look at it and they say, Jesus Christ, Son of God, I don't know. But when you can understand its value, rejecting it or taking a pass is unthinkable. And it dawns on me that there are many in this room right now 
who the truth being known, if, if you could see and see with clarity, you'd realize that you're really in that camp. You've taken a pass on this free gift as of yet. I mean, you've got religion in your background. You went to church. Maybe you've been going to the Compass Church for a long time. You got baptized as a kid. You've said prayers. You've tried to be nice and be moral. But that doesn't make you a Christian. That doesn't make you receive the gift. The Bible is clear that what you need is a, 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 a life-transforming moment with Almighty God where you look him in the eyes and you say, I understand what's being offered. Forgiveness by grace. I know I'm un- unimpressive. I know I've lived a life that's tainted with poor decisions and much sin. And I'm not even going to try anymore to impress you with my moral living. Rather, I humbly acknowledge I need Jesus to be my forgiver. Apply what he did on the cross to my life and wash my sin away. And I, in this moment, this holy moment, I ask, can I be part of your family, God? Can I be adopted? Can I become a son, a daughter of yours? Can I follow Jesus the rest of my days and let him write my story into whatever he would desire it to be? Can you make me new? In that holy, sacred exchange where you just ask God and you say, yes, I'll receive this gift. That's what makes you a true Christian. That's when the Holy Spirit of God fills your body and you are a new creation reconciled to him for all eternity, freed from the dominion of darkness and brought into the victorious procession of those following Christ. And uh, it dawns on me at the end of this message, it only makes sense to give an opportunity for you to do that. And so I'm going to pray. And for many of us who are already uh, made that decision, this prayer is just a prayer of thanks. But to some, I want to give you the opportunity to, in your heart, cry out to God. And just say, why have I not received this gift, this Van Gogh that's been extended to me all these years? I say yes today. And so this prayer is a chance for you to do business with God privately. He's listening. He's really interested in what you have to say in this moment. So let's do it. Let's let's bow our heads. Let's pray. God, I start by expressing the cry, of all of us who are are already Christians, how blessed are we? We don't get it. We don't understand why you came, Jesus. You should have left this rebellious ball of dirt called planet Earth to spiral into oblivion. That's what we deserved. But Jesus, you have come, rescued, and made us rich beyond belief. And we give you thanks today. We give you thanks tomorrow and for all eternity. We will rejoice in your gracious generosity to us in coming to save our souls. And God, I want to pray for all those who want to become a true Christian right now. I I cry out on their behalf. And if you're one of them, just in your heart, pray this with me. God, I'm unimpressive. I don't deserve this great life with you. I've made really bad decisions. You know them in detail. And so now I ask Jesus, would you forgive me? Please, Jesus, wash away all of the junk in my past. Apply what you did on the cross to my life so that I can stand forgiven before Almighty God. Lord, take my life. 
I want you to write my story. I want you to be the, my leader, my best friend, my constant companion, my help in days of trial. I receive the gift. I'd be a fool to pass on this off, offer. So as you extend this life in Christ, I say yes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.